Let us start our Bible study. We have been going through the major characters of the Bible, and Philip has thought it was fun to give me all the hard ones. So he has given me Isaiah and Ezekiel so far, and tonight I'm going to be doing Ezra. So we have our little graph. Do we have our graph? Maybe? Our map? Okay. So let's remember Old Testament timeline, Genesis, creation, we go into the call of Abraham. We have the period of the patriarchs. That's where we always talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we get to the Exodus, which is after the children of Israel are leaving um, Egypt, where they had been enslaved. And um, it, it, their salvation had turned into their slavery which that's a message for another time, but anyway. And so then the wilderness, this is the time where they are going through the wilderness because they're not being obedient to God. And then they go into the promised land. Um, they conquer the promised land. And then they have a period of time where they are ruled by judges. And these judges were appointed by God. This was not a hereditary title. God would anoint someone to be a judge over Israel. But after a while, they got tired of that because they were too different from the people who were around them. And they wanted to be the same. And so they asked God for a king, and God gave them a king. And it went okay for a couple generations, but then it went really, really badly. And so we go through the period of the kings into exile. So we are now in the post-exile period, almost to the end of the timeline, where we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and these other characters. And so we are dealing with people who have been ripped from their homeland, taken to another land, and, and they are not allowed to go back unless the ruling authorities allow them to. So that's where we are. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in our Bible, but they probably originally were one. They were probably originally one book because it's one long narrative. Um, the New Testament really never mentions Ezra or Nehemiah. And it doesn't quote either book. You know, we've been on Isaiah, and we've been in Ezekiel, and you see all kinds of references to both of those in the New Testament. But, but you don't see these two people in the New Testament. But you cannot understand the religious mindset of Jesus' day without looking at the legacy of Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor. I was reading, and they credit Ezra the priest, Ezra, with forming what was called the great assembly of scholars and prophets. He was a great leader. He was a great scholar. In fact, this um, book is written in two different languages, and they say that he probably was very well-versed in both of the languages. He was a scholar, but he wasn't just a scholar. He was a leader. And so he pulled together a company of scholars and of prophets. They called it the Great Assembly, and that was the predecessor to the Sanhedrin. And you say, why does that matter? Because the Sanhedrin is what Jesus went in front of when he was being judged worthy of death. So it's really important to understand where it came from. Ezra was doing a good thing. He was setting up a standardization of these prophets and these scholars, but it turned into the very body that would condemn 
Jesus. And so um, you can't really understand the religious mindset that Jesus walks into unless we really study this. And these books also address the challenges of being the people of God in the contemporary world. Do you hear me? The people of God in the contemporary world. Anybody find that sometimes it's challenging to be a follower of Christ in the contemporary world? It is, right? It's challenging to follow God's laws, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, to be true to your heart in the contemporary world. And so that's exactly what's going on with um, the Israelis at this point. And they ultimately find their identity in the word of God, just like we have to. They find their identity in the word of God. We see the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Babylonian forces. And this really completely freaks Israel out. Because you have to understand, they are the chosen people. Okay? They're the chosen people. That is their full identity. Chosen by God. And now... Enemy invaders haven't just come and oppressed them for a time and then God comes and rescues them, which happened for hundreds of years. They would rebel against God, they would be oppressed, and then God would rescue them. They would rebel against God, they would be oppressed, and God would rescue them. This time, God lets the enemy come in, destroy everything, and carry them away. And it shakes them to their very foundation because they had assumed that being chosen meant that they would have divine blessing and protection. In other words, they assumed that because they were chosen by God, that bad things weren't going to happen to them. And that they wouldn't suffer the natural consequences of their choices. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we can get upset at God for things that God has nothing to do with natural consequences of our choices. Just the natural consequences of our choices. Just the natural consequence of living in a fallen world, of living in a world that is imperfect, that has crazy people, that has people who do terrible things. There are things that happen to us in this world simply because we are next to other broken people. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we are immune from having bad things happen to us. And you may say, well, that, that's uh, obviously. But it's not obvious. I talk to so many people who feel like God must be mad at them because something horrible is going on in their life. God's not mad at you. Sometimes that is reality. The question is, what happens to our identity in the time of the storm? What happens to our identity when our foundations are shaken? What happens to our identity? And that's what these people are dealing with right now. You know, for some people, the, the exiles found this life in Babylon to be intolerable. They couldn't handle it. The thought of being away from Jerusalem. We see in the Bible there were people who wept all the time, who stayed by the river and would just mourn and mourn and mourn. And then there were other people who they, you know, they found success in Babylon, and they said, this is pretty great. I don't know if I want to go back. In fact, I think I'll just stay right here. But then there were those who thrived where they were, but never forgot, never forgot where they wanted to go. 
They thrived where they were, but they never forgot about the mission. They never forgot about their homeland. They never forgot about God's promises. And those were the people that ultimately were able to go back and to rebuild. So the events of Ezra and Nehemiah cover about 100 years of history during the reigns of about five Persian kings. And Philip will kill me if I go through all five of the Persian kings because he says that I'm the only nerdy person who wants to know. But if you are likewise nerdy and you want to know the names, I'll give them to you after. Okay. So um, even though Ezra and Nehemiah cover more than a century, they are not a continuous history. So whenever you're reading the Bible, don't mistake it for like um, a a book that's, that's written to be a history. It is written as a message from God to you. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't history in it, but this was not written to be a chronology of what was going on. It was written as a message to teach us something, and so that's what it does. It's divided into four separate sections, and we're going to go through each one of those. And the first is this, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. So each of the sections, the first three sections, starts with a royal decree for a group of these exiles to go back to Jerusalem. They didn't all get to go back at one time. And I think that this is a really good picture of the journey that we sometimes go on as Christians. The Bible says that we go from glory to glory, that we go from revelation to revelation. And I don't know if you've been walking with with Jesus and if you've been leaning into the Holy Spirit for any amount of time, you know that you can look back two years ago and go, man, I've learned so much. Man, I've grown so much. Man, I, you know what? I think I've got it now. And then two years go by of being in God's presence and being in his word and having iron sharpened iron and some type of relationship with another Christian. You look back at the last two years and you go, man, I have grown so much. Sometimes it takes a little while for us to move from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And we shouldn't get upset when things don't progress as fast as we want them to do. And so the first group that came from Babylon to Jerusalem, their mission was to restore the temple. We see this Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it through his kingdom. And this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem. Now, I want to make it very clear. Cyrus is not of the house of Israel. (laughs) He is not one of the chosen people. He is not the right person to build the temple. He is not at all. And yet God moved on his heart to do a great work for him. How amazing is that? And you know, sometimes we can discount ourselves, but we can also discount other people and say, you know what, I'm not the right person. I don't have the right upbringing. I don't have the right label on me. Oh, 
oh, God certainly could not use me to be able to do a great and mighty work. Well, Cyrus did a great and mighty work because he was just willing to do what he could do. And what he could do was open the door. What he could do was just open up the door for them to go back and to rebuild the temple. And so God, it says in verse um, 5, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribe to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Can you imagine how heartbroken they were when their temple was destroyed. I mean, this was the very place that Solomon had built. This was the place where God's um, glory resided on the earth. And now it had been completely destroyed, but they were given a chance to rebuild the temple. And, you know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you want to read 1 Corinthians 3, it's an incredible chapter. And it says in verse 16, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? Now that sentence is interesting, right? Because it says all of you together are the temple of God But then it goes over here and it says, and the Spirit of God lives in you. So I've heard it said many times, very truthfully, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's also true that when we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are the temple of God. Because you can't separate your well-being from the corporate well-being of God's people. When you're in a family, you live and die together. It's just the way it is. As a mom, it's so important that I keep my personal health up for the health of my family. As a person who's in the middle of a church, it's important that you take care of yourself for the health of the group. It's important that as a group that we gather around those who are having difficulty and we say, hey, you know what? You're struggling right now and you're going through something difficult right now, but that's okay. You can lean on me because next year I may be going through something difficult and I may need to lean on you. We are the temple and it's so important that when things start to go difficult, when things start to go wrong, that we take the initiative to build and to rebuild the temple, to build and to rebuild the temple. And this is the first point on on rebuilding the temple. It's this, rebuilding the temple starts with God. In that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 3, he says in verse 21, don't boast about following a particular human leader. For everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present or future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What he's talking about here is don't get so hung up with what group you're attached to that you forget that what we're building on is Jesus. That's what it is. It's just Jesus. I think it's great that right now we are building as a community at North Point Community Church. Many of you are military, and you have built many different places. And I'm glad for the people that have poured into your life. But the bottom line is if you don't have a foundation of Jesus, nothing is going to be lasting, and nothing you build is going to manage 
through transition, through shaking, through difficulty, through whatever it is. We have to start with Jesus. We have to start with God. And, and you know, the rebuilding of the temple with Ezra started with God, didn't it? It was God moving on the hearts of these people. God moving on this pagan king's heart. God moving on the Levites and on the common people and on everybody. God moving on them. It starts with God. Second thing is this, is rebuilding will cost you something. Rebuilding will cost you something. Um, Have you ever tried to build anything like I try to build stuff. I do. I know that I'm notoriously not handy, but Philip's worse. So if there's ever anything that is going to be built in our house, Emma is going to do it. And, and you know, there, there's a cost to building something, isn't there? There's a cost to building things. There, there's a financial cost. There's a cost in labor. There's a cost in emotional capacity, right? When you get those directions out and you turn them around and you thought you had them right and then you'd gone really fast and you actually did it backwards. You've never done that? Okay. I've done that a few times. There's a cost to rebuilding, but there's more than enough. God has given you everything you need to be able to build what he wants to build in your life, but we have to lean in and we have to bear the cost. There's a cost to practicing honesty, that was our house habit this, this month. I don't know if any of you tried it, but there's a cost. There is. You're not going to get a perfect response from the person you are practicing with every time. You're not going to give a perfect response when you ask for someone to practice honesty. Because there's a cost. There's an emotional cost to, to reaching out and to sharing your story There's a cost to living this life. There's a cost to loving people with all of your heart. There's a cost to giving generously. There is a cost. Sometimes I think we're surprised that there's a cost. Well, I didn't know that it was going to be this hard. Well, I get that, but there's great news. It just gets harder. It just gets harder because the more that you build, And the higher you build and the bigger you build, the bigger the cost, but also the bigger the return, but also the more that you get to see, but also the greater the adventure. There is a cost. The third thing is this, is rebuilding will require your whole heart. Rebuilding will require your whole heart. The Bible says over and over in Ezra and Nehemiah that they built with their whole heart. You know, when your heart's not in it, you can tell, can't you? When your heart's just not in it anymore. But these people, they said, no, we're going to build with our whole heart. We're going to go through the difficulty. We're going to go through the cost, and we're going to build with our whole heart. The second phase of Ezra was this, is they restored the law. So first they rebuilt the temple. That was the first flow of people from Babylon into Jerusalem. And then the second flow were those who were restoring the law. And, And we talk about Ezra as though Ezra rebuilt the temple. Ezra did not rebuild the temple, okay? That was the first group of people who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. The second group was led by Ezra. And Ezra's mandate was super exciting, to teach the people the law. That's what it was. He wasn't given a specific project. 
He wasn't given a specific piece of land to deal with. He wasn't given anything else. He was told to teach the people the law. Because there were so many people who didn't know God's law at that time. And so they had rebuilt the temple. They had started the journey. There was a place where God's presence could be, but they didn't have the knowledge that they needed to back it up. And that's what Ezra was sent to do, is to, is to teach the people the law, to teach them exactly what they were supposed to do. And so they were supposed to lean into the word of God. And Ezra gets there and he finds out that um, the people who had been left behind during captivity had intermarried with people of other faiths, pagan tribes that worshiped idols that were left there, and, there were, and they were following those practices. Now you can imagine, these people were very, very disillusioned, right? Their temples destroyed. All of their leaders all of their wealthy people, and anyone who has any special skills, they're in Babylon. So everyone who is left are the people who don't have any money, don't have any education, don't have a lot of ways of taking care of themselves, and they are left to the mercy of these other people groups. And so you can imagine they went, well, we, we should join up with the stronger people. We should definitely intermarry with these other people. We should make our ourselves secure by just, you know, compromising. I mean, we have to compromise in order to survive. You know, we just, we just have to do this. I, I realize that it's outside of our convictions. I realize that it's not something that I really want to do, but I have to compromise in order to survive. I can remember a story that my dad told about this, um, this Christian man who was a, uh, a car mechanic, and he came to my dad just in tears, and he said, I don't know what to do. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, I, I feel so convicted because I feel like I shouldn't cheat people at my shop anymore. My dad just kind of looked at him. I mean, he, he had been in the church for 30 years. You know, he's like, tell me more. You know, and he's like, well, I, I feel like I feel convicted. I shouldn't cheat people at my shop anymore, but I don't know how I'm going to survive without cheating people. He had become convinced that he could not survive without compromise, that he couldn't continue to exist without compromise. Now, I'm not talking about a specific thing in your life, but we all have those things in our life, don't we? And we can identify them. They come to our mind, those things that we compromise because we think that we need them in order to survive. And that's what he finds. But Ezra reminds the people of God's laws. He reminds the people of God's laws. And it's really interesting what he does because he lays down and he begins to pray. And as he begins to pray, people begin to join him and they come up with a plan of what to do in this situation. So how does this apply to us? We are no longer under the law, the Bible says, but under grace. But Jesus said that the whole law and all the prophets can be summed up as what? Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. I was talking to Juju and Carolina about this the other day. And I said, uh, Carolina, what, what, are, what are the three things we have to do every single day? She just kind of looked at me, brush your teeth, you know, 
um, brush your hair. I'm like, no, we don't brush your hair every day, so it can't be that, you know. I'm a fantastic mother. Um, but anyway, no, I was like, what, what are they? And she said, I don't know, Mom. And I said, well, we have to love. And she goes, God, God, it's God. You know, Juju thinks the answer to every question is God. And what's funny is it, is it works for most questions. How many of you think about it? All right, Juju, you know, who wrote the Bible? God. God wrote it. That's just the end of the story, you know, whatever it, God. Okay, well, good, that works. You know, who made this food? God? Well, I guess technically, I don't know. I mean, yes, sort of. Mom did cook it, sort of. I heated it up in the microwave. It was great. Um, but Carolina said, love God. And I said, okay, love God. And then she goes, and love your friends. I said, no, that's the wrong order. She said, what? I said, you have to love yourself because you love others as you love yourself. You love others as you love yourself. We have to be okay with what God has made us to be. Just like Johannes talked about on Sunday that we can't defeat Goliath in Saul's armor. We can't defeat the things in our life trying to be somebody else. We have to let Jesus transform us into a new creature. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit, not in our neighbor, not in our mother, not in our pastor. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit within us. Grace demands that we listen to the Holy Spirit and that we respond to him. And the Holy Spirit does the work of Ezra in our lives. He does the work of Ezra in our lives. He points out what's wrong. He says, hey, that's not okay anymore. We were, we were sitting at lunch today. And we were talking about how sweet it is that the Holy Spirit moves us from one thing to another. And, you know, it was funny because Johannes was talking about how the Holy Spirit, after he got saved, convicted him um, to stop drinking. That was something that he's convicted about, okay? And so he stopped drinking. That's not something he forces on other people, but he, he stopped because the Holy Spirit convicted him, okay? He, he stopped sleeping with his girlfriend after he got saved because the Holy Spirit convicted him, Okay, I know people who have gotten saved and they were living together and suddenly they decided to move out, get engaged and get married. I didn't say anything to them. Their small group leader didn't talk to them. What happened? The Holy Spirit convicted them. But those of us who have been in church in a long time, sometimes those things can seem obvious because they're cultural, right? And they're important to us. They're the, they're the parts of the Bible that are important to us. And we go, oh, well, of course, of course, of course the Holy Spirit would say that. I remember when the Holy Spirit convicted me about having cable television in my house. Now, I'm one of these people who's like, I'm not crazy, you know? Like, I, I'm a Christian. I'm not crazy. Like, you know, if, if you've grown up in university or if you've gone to graduate school, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you start conversations that way. Now, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm not crazy, but, you know, da, 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 da. and all of a sudden, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit speak to me. I'm like, I just like to unwind. It's my, I don't watch anything bad. Like, I'm, I'm watching friends, you know? The Holy Spirit keeps speaking to me. And it's not like, destiny, this is sin, and you're going to go to hell and all of this. That's not what it's about. It's about, hey, I want to be a little bit closer. 
I, I want that time. I want you to get rid of that distraction. I don't want that in the air of your home. Come on, Destiny. Come on. That conviction, that conviction, that conviction under grace that asks for more than the law. See, that's what's so interesting about grace. See, Jesus talked about that. He said, the law says that you shouldn't have adultery. But I say that when you look on a woman lustfully, that you've already had adultery in your heart. Grace asks for more. The Holy Spirit asks for more. And you say, oh, no, now you're talking. No, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit who convicts each of us individually and takes each of us on our own journey so that we can't justify our lives by the person to the right or the left or judge our lives by the person to the right or left. Isn't it beautiful what happens when we allow the Holy Spirit to be Ezra in our life, to remind us of the law, to move us closer to him? So that was the second thing. This is, this is one of the three things that restoring the law takes. It takes prayer. It takes wisdom, and it takes time. Ezra prayed. He got a bunch of people together and got some wisdom. And then it took a long time for them to move from one thing to the other. Be patient with ourselves. We have to be patient. Sometimes we're so mad. Oh, I'm not exactly who I need to be right now. I don't measure up to this. I don't measure up to that. What about prayer? Prayer changes things. No, no, really, hear me. Prayer changes things. We can be in church and hear that a lot and not realize it. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, I'm just really going to pray about this. And I was so upset about what they had said to me until God reminded me that they were going to go talk to my dad about me. And did I think that my dad was going to say some ugly words about me to them? No. God, I trust you with that. If they're really going to pray, then I trust that you're going to speak to their heart the truth about my heart. If they're going to pray, I believe that you're going to speak truth to them and truth to me. Um, we, we lost an amazing, amazing man last week. Um, Darrell Tupperville. Those of you who knew him, there, there was nobody like him. He was our mentor, Philip and I. There is nobody outside of our parents who had a bigger impact on our life. Nobody. Not a single person. There's not a book. There's not another human. Darrell Tupperville was our premarital counselor, and he was so good, we kept going back to him every month for like three years. And um, we needed it. But, um, <laughs> and he's always been there for us. Every crisis. Last time, I just didn't think I could go on. I called him from, from, from where I was sitting, and I was just crying. And, and he, he told me exactly what I needed to do. Do you know when he passed away, I had some really selfish thoughts? I mean, he has an amazing wife and beautiful children. And, and you know, I grieve for them because there is nothing like losing your, your husband or your father. Man, especially such a wonderful, wonderful man. But I had some selfish thoughts. And I was praying and saying, God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, he's who I call when I'm in crisis. What are we going to do? And the Holy Spirit spoke so sweetly to my heart and said, I'm still here. 
the wisdom that he got from me, you can lean into me and get for yourself. I'm still here. Sometimes we forget what's available to us. Sometimes we forget before we go into that difficult meeting or that that hard time or when we're going to have to practice honesty that we can pray and God really can prepare their heart. That we can pray and God really can open up that door. The third section is this. Repair the walls. You can come and play the piano and make this last part really, you know, wonderful. Don't you love piano under somebody's talking? It always signals that you're close to the end. So those of you who are like sleeping, it kind of it's like you're a little alarmed to suddenly wake up, you know? And the rest of you, it's like, yep, we're about 10 minutes out. Destiny's done early again. Hello. Repair the walls. So the first phase of those who left from Babylon and went to Jerusalem were the ones who rebuilt the temple. The second phase were those who restored the law. But this third phase was rebuilding the walls. And Philip talked a lot about rebuilding the walls. But, but this is what Nehemiah's mission was to do. It was to provide a defense system for the capital city and to ensure separation from the things that threatened their religious identity. Defense and separation from the things that threatened their identity. Now, I want you to look right at me. There are some things that threaten your identity. They threaten your identity as a Christian. They threaten your identity as a leader. They threaten your identity as who God has called you to be. And we have to allow the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to build up defenses and separation from those things. We can't just live with fear coming in and invading our decisions all of the time. Invading the way that we talk to our kids. Invading the way that we deal with our spouse. Invading the way that we live our business. We can't live with that because it threatens our identity. Because our identity should be that we trust God and we know that we won't be shaken. It doesn't matter if a thousand fall on one side and five thousand fall on another. I know that you still have a plan for me. That's my identity. And I cannot allow fear to come in and to invade and to take. Take that away. Insecurity. There's no place for it. There's no place. Well, I just, I'm just not sure who I, no one knows who they are. None of the people, none of the humans, the ones who look like they know who they are. I don't know. They just don't. Okay. I talk to them in counseling all the time. I'm like, wait, you look so put together. I know, but I'm just not really sure what I'm doing. No one knows what they're doing. Some people are just better at faking it than others. Insecurity doesn't come from being uncertain about what you're doing. Insecurity comes from being uncertain about whether you can do what you're called to do. And the Bible says that I can do all things through Christ who has strengthened me. And I may not know step three, but as long as I take step one, God's going to reveal step two, and then I'm going to take step three, and then I'm going to keep walking and keep walking on my journey, and I don't have to feel insecure because I'm not doing this in my own power. We have to put up defenses. 
We have to put up defenses. We have to separate ourselves from those. Stop tolerating them. Jealousy. Jealousy has no place in the kingdom of God. You know, you don't make good decisions when you're jealous. Greed. We have not bought in to the American capitalist dream. We haven't. I want to work as hard as I can to make as much money as I can to fund the kingdom of God. But I don't want to do it at the expense of my faith or my family. Greed is when money takes the place of every other success matrix, where it's the only scorecard that we're keeping, where it's the only thing that tells us whether we're worthwhile. And see, the Bible tells us that we have something that is worth more than silver or gold. We have the very Spirit of God inside of us, and nothing can separate us from that Spirit. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to build up defenses and separate us from those things. And there's a reason. It's an important reason. Because there's going to be opposition. There's going to be opposition. You know, in all three of the phases, there was incredible opposition from outside and inside. And I think sometimes we anticipate that there will be outside opposition, but it's confusing when there's inside opposition. It's confusing when somebody in your small group is making your life difficult. It's confusing when you're dealing with somebody in the church who feels uncomfortable about your conviction and tries to talk you out of it. It's confusing when when you're dealing with somebody who's supposed to be a Christian just like you and they're mean. It's confusing. Why is there opposition? Expect it. Expect it. Expect that there's opposition because anytime you have a royal mandate, anytime you have a mission, there will be opposition, period. Every time, without exception, there will be something for you to overcome. You know why? Because you need a story that you can tell about how God came through. You need to be able to look back and say, there's no way that it was me. There may not have been an angel that showed up. There may not have been a fountain that opened opened up. He may not have put the bricks by brick on the wall himself, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that if it had not been for God, what was built would not have been built. And that's the testimony of Ezra because there's not a supernatural act in the whole two books. There's not one. I mean, we're talking about Israel here. I mean, everywhere else, there's angels showing up. There's like water pouring out of rocks. There's people getting, there's, it's just amazing, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, there's not a single supernatural act. But wouldn't we say that God opening the door for the temple to be rebuilt, for the law to be restored, and for those walls to be rebuilt. Don't we think that that was a supernatural thing? And in your life, you may not be able to see something and point to a specific moment that was like Saul, who when he turned into Paul and there was a big light and an angel showed up and Jesus talked to him and all of that. But isn't it a miracle that you aren't today who you used to be? Isn't it a miracle that God has built something new in you? Isn't it a miracle that now you stand secure where you used to be insecure? Isn't it a miracle? Rebuilding the walls. We have to rebuild the walls because there will be opposition. But, but 
We also have to rebuild the walls because we have to get ready for growth. See, God's given us a mission to go into all the world and to make disciples to make disciples. And, and right here, we, we, we see in, in Nehemiah 9 and 10 that the security that was afforded by the newly completed walls allowed for the repopulation of Jerusalem. Do you see it? They built the walls and then suddenly people felt safe to come in. They built the walls and suddenly people felt safe to move in to Jerusalem. Suddenly people felt safe to come in. And when we are secure in what God has done in us, then we can offer security and refuge to others. You don't have to be perfect to offer security and refuge to others. You just have to be secure in what God has done in you and is continuing to do in you. You don't have to have all of the answers. You just have to be secure that he has all the answers. You don't have to be able to do it on your own. You don't have to be able to say, oh, I can make sure that everything's okay. Some of the most amazing, effective ministers of the gospel I have ever seen are brand new Christians. Why? Because for a split second, they just figure out that they can't do it on their own for themselves, so they can't do it on their own for other people. But then they get a little bit religious, and they start figuring out, well, I think there's like a five-step plan, and then there's a ten-step plan, and they get insecure in their own faith, and so they have to go and prove their faith on other people. We don't have to do that. Isn't that exciting? We can be secure in what God's done in us. And in that security, open up and be a secure refuge for other people. And then we don't have to be intimidated by their journey. We don't have to be intimidated by their convictions. We don't have to be intimidated by their baggage. We don't have to be intimidated by their lifestyle. We can love them exactly where they are and trust that the same Holy Spirit who rebuilt the temple in us, the same Holy Spirit who is teaching us the law, the same Holy Spirit who rebuilt the walls and put security inside of us, will do the same thing for them. As a church, we have to be secure in what God has built in us. And I'll tell you, I find that my fear is based on just the things that God hasn't yet built. Where I feel intimidated by somebody because God's built something different in their life. Man, they have such an incredible prayer life. That's unbelievable. I just, I, did you hear they pray for like two hours a day? That's, wow, that's intimidating. Yeah, God built them in their life. You, you take the prayer life that you have right now. And you run with it. It's better for you to pray five minutes a day than to sit around and wish that, hi, hey, little bit. Are they beautiful or what? Can we give them a hand? Oh, they're beautiful. Can you stand with me? God, I thank you that you're building something in this church. And God, I thank you that you're building something in me. God, I thank you that you're building something in every person here. God, I thank you that it starts from the inside out. Sometimes we so desperately, Lord, want it to be from the outside in. We want to have the security. We want to have the nice finish first. But Lord, your way is to build us from the inside out. 
Put your Holy Spirit inside of us to build that temple. And then to teach us. And then as we become secure in you, to build those walls. To build those walls that provide protection, not just for our own hearts, but provide a place of refuge for other people. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be a church that allows you to do what only you can do, but that works so hard to do what you've called us to do. God, let us lean into you like never before. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts even tonight. Speak to our hearts even tonight. God, I pray that those who've been plagued with fear and with doubt and with insecurity, Lord, I pray that they would right now choose to have your identity, the identity you offer, that we are loved by you, that there's more than enough, and that you'll complete the good work that you've done in us. Will you just lift your hands to heaven if you feel comfortable? Let's just pray together. God, we thank you for what you're building. God, we thank you that if you used people like Ezra and Nehemiah, if you used people like Cyrus, a pagan king, if you, if you used these people to do your will, that you can use us. Holy Spirit, we give you our hands. We say use us. Use us in our communities. Use us in our families. Use us. you can do exceedingly abundantly above. Exceedingly abundantly above. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name.